Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Sandra Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah. Hi, this is Sarah from Philadelphia, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, folks, and welcome to another tennis podcast, our second of the week, because that's that's just how we roll now, isn't it? Um, and thanks in particular to Sarah Matthew in Philadelphia, who is responsible for that soothing and sumptuous intro that you just heard. Sarah, you have successfully auditioned to be the new voice of Marks and Spencer. You probably don't know who Marks and Spencer are, Uh being based in the US, but they're a, a department store in the UK whose food adverts have sort of become quite famous for the soothing and sumptuous voice used on them. And I, I think, Sarah, that you should consider being the next voice of m and <laughs> if you haven't already. We can we can send the tape in to Marks and Spencer's <laughs> just so that they can yeah. try it out for themselves. Either that or you should, you know... Um, start a meditation app of some sort or just narrate things. I'd buy that. Yeah. Yeah. You and Yannick Noah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sarah Matthew and Yannick Noah. Lovely. Lovely stuff. I recently tried out the Calm app because it came as, oh, a, yes. it came as a kind of added bonus with my phone contract. And how, how are you getting on with that, Matt? Disappointed that Yannick Noah wasn't on it. <laughs> An oversight. I've had to. I've, I've had to make do with Matthew McConaughey, who, to be fair, does have a nice voice. Matthew McConaughey is involved with the Calm app. Mm. Come on, that's night and day. She, she just comes over and says, "All right, all right, all right, yeah. <laughs> right, okay, great. Nothing more calming than Matthew McConaughey." How are we, folks? All right. Other than calm, Matt. I'm well. I know for a fact David has a new chair, which is exciting news. Yeah. Yeah, it's emerged that that David's been podcasting for for eight years on the most Spartan chair you've ever seen. I don't know how he's still upright. It's how we roll in the Midlands, you know. So tell us about the new chair. Rough and ready. Oh, it took me hours to put together. Honestly, <laughs> there are only six steps. Six steps to put it together in this instruction manual. Honestly, oh. I am I am currently in the process of buying lots of furniture um, for a new flat and. Uh, yeah, either either pre-assembled or delivery man does assembly for you are two prerequisites for everything I'm I'm buying. Yeah. 
Don't ask for help, right? Faux pas, David, faux pas. But anyway, I'm very pleased that you're no longer um, podcasting on a sort of prison chair. <laughs> um, but I'm very sad for past David, who it turns out was podcasting on a prison chair. Very well done for producing 709 podcasts, most of them from that chair. Um, tennis, more tennis is happening this week, folks. The Western and Southern Open, which I'm trying very hard to not call Cincinnati. Uh, every time I have a brainworm that says Cincinnati and I have to override it. The Western and Southern Open, well, the qualifying events are underway in earnest. We can't, we can't watch those matches unless, um, we do so via a betting website, which is something that is getting quite a lot of pickup. And I think rightly so. It doesn't feel, that just doesn't feel right, does it? And we'll just, it is, it doesn't feel right that there's tennis going on that we can't watch. It just feels like a, a waste. And particularly as the particular tournament that we're talking about, A, is the first site of men's tennis in six months on the tours. And there are also expanded qualifying draws to to really make use of the opportunity. And they've got 48 players in both the men's and and women's uh, singles. So, you know, you've got, you've got a massive amount of matches and yeah I'm, I'm not exactly sure how it works because i'm sure the broadcasters would show it if they received it but mm. and and it's obviously being produced at a certain level because the betting websites are getting it but for whatever reason it's just not getting out there and, and i personally don't don't want to go on a betting website i was also quite amused at ivan lubacic who tweeted that he didn't actually know whether he was allowed to sign up to a betting website because he is, I imagine, involved <laughs> in the tennis integrity unit in terms of being a coach of a player. And that's the only place he would be able to watch it. So I'm not really sure what the rules are, but maybe, maybe I can find that out. I'll look into it. I mean, that, that, that does very much show up the, um, the ludicrousness of the, the system, doesn't it? I, I'm, I do feel quite confident that it'll change because, as you say, it seems a very easy one to, to fix. I rather suspect it is just uh, a bit of an oversight. I should say, by the way, the majority of this podcast is going to be um, an interview with former US Open champion, three-time Grand Slam champion, Lindsay Davenport, that I know we've been promising you for months. Um, but you're finally going to get it today. And it's a lovely, lovely lesson. She's... Um, She's a, a great lady and really articulate. And uh, yeah, we're going to be, after we finish chatting about tennis, actual tennis, uh, we'll be playing you that interview, which I did back in May when there was no tennis, the dark days. Um, but we've had the draws, Matt, for the Western and Southern Open. Tell us about the draws. Well, we saw the draws <laughs> an hour before we were supposed to see the draws. Uh, they, they, Cincinnati did a big thing that the draws no, were No, the out. Western Sorry, and Southern Western Open. And Southern oh, wait, open. You, you're wrong there, though, Catherine, because on the official draw sheet, they've got the words Cincinnati hyphen New York. It's like they're trying to make my life difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to anyway. plow on calling it Cincinnati. I'm, okay. I, just, I just can't not do that. He's uh, doing air okay. quotes. I, res- I respect that. Um, we, we were supposed to get them at 11.30pm UK time and suddenly at 10.30 UK time they appeared on the ATP and WTA <laughs> websites 
And as far as we can tell, they had been accidentally leaked an hour early, which, as far as I'm concerned, is should be the, the final nail in the coffin of draw reveals, which are one of the worst inventions to come into tennis in the last three years. I mean, I've been beating this drum for, well, s- since they first arrived, to be honest. They suck all the suspense and anticipation out of a draw and i don't believe draws are rigged but why would you not make them as transparent as you possibly can and frankly i hate them with every fiber of my being and (laughs) Matt, just just for the sake of my mum just explain what a draw reveal is so a draw reveal is when they've already done the draw behind the scenes and then when they come to say the draw is live they literally just tell you what it is rather than drawing the names one by one and getting that suspense of all oh, Coco Goff scout who's she going to play in the first round which is a great moment as a as a tennis fan and someone interested, interested it's like in these instead events. of showing a tennis match you play it behind closed doors with nobody with not filming it a couple of hours before and then, and then flash up the when the broadcast starts just go oh she won <laughs> yeah Let's talk about it. A bit like the podcast, yeah. really. Right? We come on air. <laughs> Here's the result. Now we'll talk about it. As I said, it should be the final nail in the coffin. But I very much suspect in exactly a week's time, we will, we will be having the same angst when the US Open do their draw reveal. Um, but yes, all all power to events who keep doing live draws. They are much, much better. Um, the draw itself, though, regardless of the manner of its reveal... Is I mean, I suppose it was sort of always going to be a... I can't imagine what drawer I'd have looked at and not been excited about. Um, but I am excited about it. Mm. But both the men's men's and the women's, it is an, it's, a, it's a tasty draw. It's not one that I look at and genuinely lament. The first thing I think of isn't, oh, what a shame, Federer, Barty, Nadal, Andreescu, not there. I mean, yes, it is... A, of course, it's a dreadful shame, but that wasn't, thankfully, the first thing that, that occurred to me when I looked at those draws. Yeah, it feels like the events we've had have been the first rain after a drought, and now this is this is the sort of pouring rain. And we've got a, an event with both men's and women's draws, which is always always elevated, always more exciting. And yeah, the first thing you see is not that six of the top 10 women are not there. It's the strength of the fields, the depth of the fields. And yeah, I mean, there's so many good round one matchups. And for all the talk of asterisks and weak fields, it's just not the first thing that comes to mind when you see these events. And I know it's slightly different for Cincinnati slash Western Southern Open because because the draw is smaller. So you're bound to get better round one matches anyway. We might feel it a little bit more at mm. the US Open but for sure these are two very very strong draws which emphasize how many just how many good players there are in both the men's and and women's fields particularly the women's field I think because that that is the event which has lost more of the top names and yet it doesn't yeah. feel weakened yeah asterisk this David Venus Williams against Diana Ostremska Kim Kleisters against Jennifer Brady Coco Goff against Maria Sakari Sloane Stevens versus uh, Caroline Garcia and Donna Vekic against Victoria Azarenka. Those are all first rounds. Yeah, they're fantastic first rounds. And I think it's the first time it's really hit me. And I think it's probably a, a result of Federer and Nadal not being in the draw at all. That when I looked at the two draws back to back, 
I suddenly realised that the WTA drawer is the one with all the star power, or at least the one that feels like it's got more of the star power these days. And there you've said six of the world's top ten not there, and yet it doesn't really feel like it. And that's no disrespect to Simona Halep and Ash Barty. But when I look down that draw, and okay, Carolina Pliskova is top seed, Sophia Kennan is the second seed, but you've got Venus Williams, Serena Williams, Coco Goff, who now feels like a legitimate star, even with her fame racing ahead even of her achievements, but so much to talk about with her... Kim Kleisters returning and being back as part of the draw. And then just so many other names, Naomi Osaka, people like that, that I don't know, I, I kind of feel when you look at the actual draw and the people in it, the WH, WTA draw has has a, a lot more matches and players that I would be interested on paper in following. Yeah, I would agree with that because I think a lot of the uh, – a lot of the – the ATP players that that you sort of raise an eyebrow out of potential excitement—they're ones that are to yet yet to prove themselves or have a have a moment in the way that some of those WTA players that you've you've mentioned have. I mean, yeah, okay, I'm really excited about Dominic Team. I, I love to watch him, but he but he hasn't won a slam. I you know I I hope that we see the Daniil Medvedev that we saw this time last year. Um, and not the slightly. I, spe- I hope he spent his time in lockdown reflecting on whether he wants to be corporate Daniil Medvedev <laughs> or um, Daniil Medvedev of US Open 2019. Daniil Medvedev, and I, I desperately hope he's reached the only, the only rightful conclusion of that debate. Um, yeah, the, on the ATP side, there's a lot that there's a lot that could be exciting. And we want to be exciting and we're bigging up as potentially being exciting, but they're not quite there yet. Um, whereas in the WTA, it feels like there's a lot that just are exciting. It highlights the challenge for men's tennis, mm. really, that for the first time we see a draw without those two in it. Now, fortunately, there is also Novak Djokovic and there is Andy Murray and then there are a couple of interesting players that have made some strides you mentioned team the Sitsipas as well but the the lack of strides that the field have made in catching up and becoming relevant over the last five years now feels very very stark I'm very interested in how it's going to feel with Djokovic as the only one of the big three there because I always think of them as in a way pack hunters you know one of them will often lose early in in a tournament in a slam it's actually quite rare that all three of them make it to the very latter stages of the tournament but without fail pretty much one or two of them do get there so in that respect it almost feels like as a three they outnumber the rest of the field when you've only got one you are guaranteed to have a non-Big 3 finalist. So the rest of the field should be thinking, this is my time. I only need to beat one of them. and I only, I only need to do it once. And, you know, we can kind of gang up together and try and take this guy out of the field. Now, I don't know whether it will end up playing out like that, but I feel like the dynamic shifts when there's only one of them in the draw. And it's almost like the advantage is with the rest of them. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be fascinating. And I do think looking, I'm probably going, getting a bit ahead of myself, but I do think the player most likely 
to beat Djokovic is still in the draw. I th- I think on a hard court, especially over five sets, when we get to the US Open, I think that player is probably team because Federer hasn't done that, I think, since 2009, beaten Djokovic over five sets on a hard court and Nadal, we know, can barely win a set over Djokovic. So in that respect, I still think Djokovic has got a big, big test on his hands these next four weeks in this bubble. He's uh, in since... Oh, I've done it. I've done it. The Western and Southern Open, he's got to buy in the first round. Djokovic is the top seed. And then he will play either a qualifier or Tommy Paul, about whom there were rumours that he'd put on about eight stone during lockdown <laughs> a few months back. Completely, as far as I can see, unsubstantiated rumours. Uh, but I am I'm interested to... <laughs> <laughs> to see post-lockdown Tommy Paul. Uh, Dominic Team, of course, at the other end of the draw is the second seed by also in the first round, a likely second round with Filip Krajinovic. Also in that bottom half of the draw is the fifth seed, Alexander Zverev, who could be on for a second round meeting with Andy Murray, should Andy Murray navigate his first round against Francis Tiafo, which is by no means a given, absolutely. Murray, a, a totally unknown quantity. But I, I rather suspect that Andy Murray, if he needed any extra motivation, will be highly motivated by the prospect of, of facing Alexander Zverev. I think he's one of those players, and I think there's a few of this younger next generation that... Andy Murray being the kind of character that he is would quite like to show up yeah. and put in their place. Unquestionably. I think it's one of the three reasons why he's still out there. One is I think he feels like he wants to make up for lost time and just wring every drop of Grand Slam tennis out of whatever he's got in his body. Uh, two is to try to see if he can be a contender again and win titles. And three is just to come on then. Come on, kids. <laughs> Let's see what you got. Let's have a look. <laughs> and, and that's the thing he's barely played any of these players I think he's mm. played Zverev once but a long time ago he's not played Sitsapas, he's not played Shapovalov he's not played Auger Eliassime and you just you just know he would love to expose them a little bit and sort of prove that his game matches up well against theirs and he's a better player than them and I think it's a really interesting time for Andy Murray because for three years ever since he went to New York for the 2017 US Open when he was desperate to try and get fit and he pulled out after the draw had been made. For three years, he's been playing catch-up. He's been trying to come back when he's not really ready. He's He's been trying to play, play through pain. And now he's in a scenario where everyone's been away for six months and they're all, they all feel slightly like they're starting again. Now, Murray is still probably got a bit more work to do because we know that he has had major, major injuries, which these other players haven't had. And we don't know how fully functioning he's going to be. But if ever there's a time in the last three years that it might feel like he's gained a little bit on the rest of the field, it does feel like now with these six months away. The There have been pictures emerging, haven't there, of the tournament site, the um, Billy Jean King National Tennis Centre bubble. Um, and it's not helping my FOMO because it looks blooming great. There's crazy golf, uh, there's basketball. It just looks really, really lovely, <laughs> and I want to be there. What's FOMO I want to again? be in that bubble. Fear of missing out. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
I've already got I mean, that. I know you have to go back to your hotel room every night and sort of sit on your own rock back and forwards and choose from a limited uh, room service menu. But I think I could handle that if I spent my days playing tennis and crazy golf. And, and football pool, which looked like yeah. a, a thing. I mean, long story short, they've done a great job, haven't they? It really looks like they've 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 done a great job. I mean, there are certain elements of being in a bubble that are unavoidably unpleasant and suboptimal for for players but everything that they can optimize and make bearable if not pleasant it it looks like they've done to me there was a very interesting article by howard fendrick of the associated press just giving some numbers and some details of what is happening on the site so he was saying that the dining room capacity is now at 50 rather than 300 the locker room capacity is now at 30 at a time rather than 300 at a time. And it's limited to players only and it's centred around their match times. They're not allowed to just hang out in the locker room. They can only be there about 15 minutes prior to their match. Um, there are these suites for the seeded players on the Arthur Ashe Stadium. And I, th- I think also Kim Kleisters might have a suite. I think <laughs> I think as a as a former champion, she might have And maybe Andy one. Murray as well. And I'm sure Andy Murray. They've put Sitsipas and Naomi Osaka's suites next to one another, which is a masterstroke. Well yes, done. A star for whoever came up mm-hmm. with that idea. That is that is hopefully going to be excellent. Um, all the massage tables are outside. There are there are forty social distance ambassadors who are apparently walking around the site monitoring mask usage and social distancing. So I just thought it was a really interesting insight into some of the actual measures that they're that they're taking. There, there aren't cars ferrying people to and from the hotel to the site. There are 60 buses, all at 50% capacity. Um, and apparently eight players have chosen private housing um, and everyone else is in one of the two official hotels. And of the 1,400 players and entourage members that were tested upon arrival in the bubble, there has been just one positive test returned. Um, And now the USCA didn't uh, identify that person. They just specified that it wasn't a player, but they have subsequently identified themselves. It's the physio of Hugo Delian and Guido Pella. So he is now, the physio is now in isolation. And also due to the contact tracing and the heavy contact that Pella and, and Delian were, were, were known to have had um, with their physio in the period where um, he was likely to have been infectious. They are now also in isolation as well. So won't be able to play the Western and Southern Open, but are hopeful that they can return a positive te- uh, a negative test rather um, and play in the US Open. Um, so one, pos- one positive out of 1,400. Again, I make the point that I just hope it doesn't, it, the point is being made firmly that that doesn't make you, a negative test doesn't make you bulletproof. But... That's that's good going, yeah. isn't it? They'll 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 have been happy with that. They're, they're good stats, and they knew in advance that they would get a positive test and probably more at some point. And they have got a system in place for it. Now, it's it really brings it home to you, doesn't it? When you hear about two players that have not themselves tested positive and are not feeling any effects whatsoever, and basically their tournament is over. That gives you an insight into the teeth of the protocols that are in place and 
you know, at some point we may get a big name who is suddenly out of the US Open without any say in the matter, somebody who's feeling absolutely fine and that they cannot leave their hotel room for 14 days. And it it, it kind of has to happen in order to really bring it home to you what that means. Um, but so I feel very sorry for those two players. I hope the, the physio gets better soon uh, or at least doesn't f- have too many bad effects from it. But that's the reality we're in. And ultimately, if you want to run this tournament, that's how you've got to run it. Yeah, the stakes are high. So the... Yeah, the measures have to be extreme. We've also had uh, some details dripping out of ESPN, who are, of course, the US broadcaster and the host broadcaster, so essentially provide the the feeds to, to the rest of the world of the US Open, of their plans to elevate the experience for the viewer. Uh, these include a player's box a virtual players box where the players have to submit a list of 15 people that that might like to watch their match from home i i get the feeling that the more high profile players will be encouraged for those 15 people as many possible possible as many as possible to potentially be celebrities i i feel like gavin rostell might be popping up on a on a zoom screen somewhere although maybe not because federer is not playing but i feel like he'll worm his way in uh yeah so they'll submit uh, a list of 15 15 family friends celebrities whatever and they will pop up on zoom screens in a virtual player box and uh yeah they'll be sort of their floating heads will be sitting courtside uh and and the players will be able to interact with them throughout the course of the match. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's a, there's a version of it being done in the NBA bubble at the moment where where we've seen the fans on the screen that have paid, obviously, significant amounts in order to be on the screen. And, and I like that visual personally. I, I do like the way it looks. It, it's quite comforting, I find, the way, and the way they've dressed it. If they, I don't think that they're going to be able to do that the same way at the US Open, judging by the way the Arthur Ashe Stadium looks. It looks like just a couple of screens, and then the rest of it is is draped over with, with the US Open banners and various um, social justice messages, etc. Um, we'll see how they end up properly dressing the site in order to to make it work as best as possible um i know that some people and, and uh, talking to mary about it uh, the last couple of days mary carrillo mentioned that she just wants it raw she wants to know what what this situation does to these players and to re- if if this is the reality give us the reality and i know we've talked about the feeling that the the sort of white noise, the crowd hubbub that you get at an event like this is something that we find quite comforting as a viewer. And that's what it sounds like the ESPN producer intends to, to put over the production here. I would personally like to have a button that I can have a choice either way and live them both. But um, yeah, they've said again, they've got to raise those mic levels, court level, um, mm. and they've got to use some more up close and personal courtside cameras i think to really make the very most of the fact that they can perhaps do a bit more with no crowd than they could have done previously yeah agreed i I like that they've gone for the white noise you know lord's ambient send you to sleep noise rather than specific crowd noise i'm glad that the there's 
there doesn't seem to be any movement for there to be, you know, crowd cheering at the end of points or anything Could like that. Could probably do without um, the the crowd question that gets into Tom Rinaldi's Oh, I was coming interview. on to that, David. <laughs> now, quote, super fans, and I... I have issues with anybody that describes themselves as a super fan. Look, being a fan of, of something or someone is fine, but I think as soon as you describe yourself as a super fan, you are identifying yourself as somebody a little bit unhinged. <laughs> <laughs> For me, you're identifying yourself as somebody that sends angry tweets to people that express positive feelings about anyone that is not the personal player that you're a super fan of so a bit like me and West Bromwich Albion yeah yeah (laughs) anyway uh, if you are a super fan I mean you've probably tuned out by now (laughs) but if you are a super fan you will have the chance to submit your inane question to Tom Rinaldi um, and have him ask it to your player or maybe not inane but probably inane it'd be awkward if Tom Rinaldi got shown up I mean, I get the feeling that it's probably going to be awkward one way or another. Does Tom get any choice? I mean, you know, I mean, I can just imagine thinking, I'm not asking that. Oh, interesting. Do you think Tom will be asking the question or do you think they will get the super fan on a on a link, on a Zoom? Oh, yeah. yeah, they'll probably do that. I think that is risky. That is 100% risky. Again, if someone's identifying themselves as a super fan, I would not put them on a live Zoom going around the world. Probably be pre- to a pre-recorded, won't it? Yeah, yeah, maybe that, and heavily edited, yeah. Um. (laughs) Yes, a super fan reveal, so to speak, (laughs) which in this Um, case might be the best best option. Actually, no, just not having it at all. So that's what will be happening at the US Open, as we understand. I got that from a New York Post uh, article. Um, We've also, just to wrap up, a couple of other things. Oh, I've created a really excellent segue for myself there. Can anybody tell where I'm going next? No. I've said the word rap. Oh, God. Folks, there have been a lot of missteps misdemeanors awkward moments created by tennis players over the course of the last bizarre six months but we have a winner (laughs) we have a winner and the contest is closed no other entries are necessary because Denis Shapovalov seems to have written and produced a rap music video Mm-hmm. Would anyone like to know a lyric? Mm. Oh, yes, please. Yeah, I think the people need to hear some lyrics, Matt. Well, I only have one. Can you not swear? I'm making what they make in a year, in a day. Got checks coming in times two. There's also a lot of references to crowds screaming his name, which I, I mean, maybe that does happen to him, but it feels a little premature. I don't feel uh, particularly qualified to appraise uh, one's rapping ability or not. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's rare that, <laughs> that a, a world-class tennis player is also a world-class rapper. And, and I'm not convinced mm. that this is um, the best use of his time. <laughs> I'm surprised he's gone down this route after his debut 
I mean, I thought the consensus was that what he did in was it Miami or Indian Wells last year? It was Indian Wells, Matt. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm. I thought the consensus was that was bad. Yeah, and he stopped. He there he, was definitely he didn't do it again. Yeah, he stopped doing it. He lost. He lost his next match, didn't he? After the the public rapping and and definitely things improved on the public rapping front after then. And I I agree with you. I thought he had just quietly put that to bed and identified it as you know one of those silly things you do as a teenager that people forgive because you're not a fully formed adult yet although if you if you just in, if he's enjoying it why not yeah sure but just don't there's no need to make it public there's no need to inflict it on everyone I think he has a right to do it and we have a right yeah. to say that we think it's terrible absolutely <laughs> Absolutely. I support his right to do it and very much our right to say it's terrible. <laughs> um, the final couple of things. Uh, new, uh, the New York Times has done a – Chris Clary has done a sit-down interview with Novak Djokovic, kind of the first uh, really in-depth um, commentary we've heard from him since the Adria Tour fiasco. Um, what were our thoughts of that? interview i mean you can read it it's on the new york times and make your own mind up uh, anyone anyone for any thoughts i would say it's probably pretty much what i would have expected based on little drips of response that i've heard from Djokovic in in other interviews in serbia that have been translated and the gist of that being that yes he accepts that it didn't go exactly as it should have done and he didn't do it exactly uh, right, um, and that he's very sorry for the fact that uh, people got unwell, but that he's not about to take responsibility for them all. Uh, and he used the word witch hunt. Uh, he said that if he had the situation again, he would do it again. I, I kind of think that what he probably means there is is that it came from his mind, from a good place, in that he was trying to do something positive, and therefore, if he had the chance to do that again, he would do it again. Hopefully, with different. I hope he means that it would he would do it completely differently, though, uh, given that it was an absolutely unmitigated disaster in terms of uh, public relations and also potential health risks. Um, but I feel that he. He sounded a bit out of touch, to be quite honest with you. Uh, f f from my standpoint, uh, he, he, I, I would have liked him to have been rather more forthcoming with understanding that it was just, it was just completely unthought through and badly executed, and that he, yeah, he wished he'd done something differently. Mm. He came across to me more resentful and remorseful about the Adria tour and I agree with that phrase out of touch in terms of his his response both to that and also his comments about his situation at the US Open you know how he's he's obviously one of the players with a private house and that's fine he's he has earned that right and he's he's in that position because of what he's done on a tennis court but his comments about oh I'm glad I'm here and not in that not in that hotel with all the other players. It just it doesn't it doesn't come across as what he's been trying to tell people that he's looking out for the rest of the tour. Like he doesn't he just doesn't need to comment on it. I don't think in that way. It just it doesn't come across particularly well. Um, as you said, it comes across as out of touch. Um, 
And look, he's had a bad six months, most of it of his own making. And I think he's had he's had an uneasy relationship at times with the media in the past, and it hasn't actually affected his on-court performance at all. I am interested whether it's more on his mind over the next month. I, I can very much imagine a scenario where he continues on the path that he was on, 18 matches unbeaten at the start of the year, and manages to block it all out. But it does, does seem to me that there's a little bit more of a tension, as I said, a little bit a little bit of bitterness between him and the media at the moment and how he's being portrayed. And I, I'm just interested to see over the next month whether that does feed into his tennis or not. My expectation would that it'll probably bring out the defiance in him again because yeah. that has been the the characteristic from his, frankly, greatness over the years. Apart from being a very good tennis player and an, an astonishing athlete, it's been that if you're all against me, and that's usually a crowd... I am going to take you down, and invariably he does. And I think creating that sort of siege mentality won't do his tennis any harm whatsoever. I I, I was just thinking back to you know it's it's only a little over a year ago that we had Janka Tipsarevich as a guest on the podcast, who was explaining his frustration with the world's media and, and pointing specifically to to the British media, of which which I am a part, and and feeling that Novak gets an unfair crack of the whip versus all the other players. And I do think sometimes we, we go over the top and um, he has sometimes been criticised out of kilter with what he's actually done. And and I think that that's where some of his kind of victim victimhood comes from in this situation. I think he, he builds them all into one. Whereas actually in this instance um, and over the last few months, He's just he's there have been so many missteps that I don't know you, you take them in isolation there's no there's no excusing it really Yeah I mean out of touch or not he has not written or produced his own rap music so it's not all bad uh, Should we hear from Lindsay Davenport Yes please Yes please uh, she she was fantastic an absolute joy to talk to and um Somebody that doesn't, she doesn't seem to have much of an ego at all for a three-time Grand Slam champion, and and somebody, you know, she's she's a pundit now. She does a lot of work for for Tennis Channel. Somebody that is is clearly, it seemed to me, unused to talking about herself, which I find e- extraordinary, given what she's achieved and how kind of relatively recent it was. Um, but she was she was a little taken aback actually um, that the interview was so much about about her and not just asking her views on on current players and I found that really interesting and, and refreshing and I I hope you do too. And just to say as well before I leave you in the lovely company of Lindsay Davenport we have so much coming up for you. Of course we do because uh, David Law is my co-presenter. Uh, we have two slams worth of Grand Slam dailies, the US Open and of course the French Open. Uh, we have Tennis Relived as well. We have US Open Relived. We've been making plans for this over the last few weeks and doing interviews for it. And Matt's been doing, even by his standards, the most extraordinary prep I have ever read. And we're going to be doing two specials, both of them out next week in the week building up to the US Open. One on Arthur Ashe, the first ever open era US Open champion in 1968 and the man after whom the main stadium is named 
and Althea Gibson, the first black woman ever to win a Grand Slam title and to win a US Open title. And the the first black woman that was actually ever permitted to play what had previously been all white tennis tournaments in the US, two incredibly significant figures in tennis, two figures that I'm embarrassed to say I didn't previously know nearly as much about as I ought to have. But um, we've been putting that right over the course of the last two weeks. And it's been a joy. And uh, I hope it's a joy that you'll enjoy as well next week. So there is lots coming up. (laughs) Uh, And we can't wait. I I mean, you know, I'm not looking forward to the lack of sleep it's going to cause, but it's going to be great. Uh, So make sure you join us for all of that from next week. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, tennis podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. But for now, here is Lindsay Davenport, who I started off by asking very pertinently what she thinks it's going to be like for players playing behind closed doors with no crowds. It would be very hard and I think challenging, more challenging for the players than what everybody else kind of thinks about. And you think about the US Open, you think about Arthur Ashe Stadium Court or some of the other courts, but sometimes it's the outside courts where you get this amazing atmosphere and you get a match that maybe people didn't expect would go five sets or late in the third, and it's crazy out there. And I think the players might feed off the crowd's energy maybe more than we give them credit for. It seems like a pretty big risk to take um, to try and put something on in a pretty monumental scale. Um, without fans or to have a, quote, normal tournament. I think it's going to take a a while to define what the new normal is 
and holding sporting events and tennis is not alone and trying to figure it out with all the other major sports. It kind of feels like fans and spectators are saying, just just bring back sport. However you have to do it, just bring it back. I want some sport to watch on the TV as soon as possible. Whereas, I don't know, athletes trying to put yourself in, in the shoes of an athlete having to play, let's say, a Grand Slam final with no crowds. That's Can you imagine what, what it would have been <laughs> like to do that? I would be, I, I would think so hard. I mean, it's, part of the the nerves that go out there oh i'm about to walk in front of twenty thousand people right i i don't but in absence of it being completely gone i think the players are realizing that maybe that would maybe be okay and something they're learning to work with maybe even more challenging for the players like rafa and roger and those who are always kind of in those situations and really learn to appreciate and and give back to the fans also you mentioned uh, Rafa and Roger there. They have both come out during this period and backed a merger of the ATP and WTA. They, they haven't talked about details of how that might happen, but in principle, what do you think of that? I, I've always been a huge proponent for it. I think that it, it, if you step back from, from it a little bit and you look at how crazy it seems that we have all these different entities that can make massive decisions for our sport – and whether it be about the Grand Slams or last year it was about, you know, the Challenger Tour, they just decided the ITF to maybe, to blow it up a bit and make it really not, not important anymore. And it had huge ramifications for all of the players that were trying to make it into the bigger leagues. Um, and the ATP and WTA didn't have a big say on that. So I always have thought it would be much better and much more beneficial for everybody. And the sum of two parts would be far greater um, if they could work together and have a unified voice in everything moving forward in our sport. Did, does it bother you that it's kind of taken this for for people to to wake up and take notice? There was that really funny response from Billie Jean King to to Roger Federer's yeah. tweet saying, hey, I, I feel like I've been saying this since, since the early yeah. 70s. You know, but right now it's like we have this amazing opportunity as a sport because so many of the top players – have this well it shouldn't be you know it's just we haven't had the support of the male top players like this ever um you know i tell madison keys all the time i go you're so lucky to play in this era i played in an era in the 90s where we had one top player uh at a press conference call us all fat lazy pigs we had another (laughs) one say he slept through a grand slam final to a room full of laughing journalists like it it the, the attitude has never been like this before as supportive as seeing the bigger picture of everything and not just, well, how is it going to affect my prize money next week? And I think that is then a real opportunity. People listen to Rafa, Roger, Andy's been so fantastically supportive for forever. So, you know, all of a sudden people like that start talking and everybody else seems, okay, well, let's, let me actually learn more about it. What does this actually mean? Not like, oh, I, I don't want to be playing for, the same money as her. And so hopefully things will get done. It's obviously very complicated with all the little nuances of it all. But I think it's something that, you know, could really be positive that comes out of this kind of crazy time. Interesting. You you mentioned they're talking to Madison about kind of the the appreciation of, of the sport's history, um, you know, what, what the sport has been through, particularly women's sport to get to where it is now. Do you think maybe that could be something that that comes of of this strange, strange period, a greater sense of perspective, maybe? Absolutely. And appreciation. There's no doubt. You know, you kind of go through this kind of crazy life of, 
oh, well, I have this opportunity next week, you know, to whether win a tournament or get ranking points or win a certain amount of prize money. Uh, I'm a little tired. I'm not going to go play. Now, all of a sudden, everything's kind of taken away. And it's like, wow, we're really going to have to fight and scrape to get back on tour, to get back to having earning a living, getting back to actually doing what I love and why I started playing tennis in the beginning. Um, I think it'll be the attitudes of the players will be so different, really in all sports, when it's able to restart and kind of get a sense of, wow, I am really so fortunate. And then maybe more players will learn why this tour came about and, and all the sacrifices that everyone, especially Billy, had to make in the 70s to make this a reality. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to to take a, a look back a bit on, on some aspects of your own career. I want to start actually with Atlanta, 1996, the Olympics, a, a gold medal for your country. What that meant to you at the time and, and what it means to you, you now to, to have that gold medal. Um, you know, it, it's kind of one of these, these things that I look back of and it, it's still like, I can't, it was that me. Like, I don't even, it doesn't seem like it was real. I had just turned 20 years old. I was a very, very good junior player. I made the transition to the pro tour pretty well, but I kind of liked hanging out between eight and 16 in the rankings. You know, I, I was very insecure. I was very um, unsure of, of really what could I do. And so I liked doing well, but I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do too well because it seemed really overwhelming to be one of those top players. Um, I wanted to go to college, but honestly, I, w- I was too good. I think I was in the top 10 at 17 or 18. So kind of couldn't really hang back and go to college. So here I go at 20 years old to Atlanta for two or three weeks in a setting that seemed so comfortable. Look at all these athletes you know, you have all different shapes and sizes. You have players that are really working hard, but have so much in common and you get to hang out with them, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner in the village. You are sharing this with your teammates who are some of my best friends and Mary Jo Fernandez, Monica Sellis. Um, it was the best time ever, especially the week leading into the play. And so by the time that the tournament actually started, it was like, oh, yeah, I'll go play my match and then we'll go back to the village and we'll hang out. And everything went so fast in those few weeks. And there I was left standing um, winning at the end because I was so incredibly happy and excited with everything that was going on. I kind of forgot what was I what was my job. And tennis wasn't, you know, on the covers of all the papers. There's all these other sports. Um, so it seemed like a perfect fit for me at that that summer of 96. Where does it rank for you among your achievements? Where does it sit amongst the Grand Slam titles? It very, um, it kind of is almost tied with the U.S. Open. I, I kind of put the U.S. Open a little ahead because when I was growing up, you know, tennis wasn't the medal sport. So I, you know, always dreamed of winning the U.S. Open if I could ever allow myself to kind of dream that big. My dad was an Olympian in 1984 when I was eight. The Olympics were in Los Angeles where we lived, and both my parents worked. Uh, different events, the volleyball event for the Olympics. And I had an older sister, 16 years older, who would take me around all the sports and kind of taught me everything about the Olympics. And so it was like a huge dream of mine. So then when it became a reality of even just making the team in 96, it was so uh, kind of huge from also my family and my dad as well, and having a second generation Olympian. So um it it was, it's very, very, very high. My kids actually, my mom has been cleaning out her, 
her house and she found this big box of Olympic memorabilia, I think from the 2000 games. And my kids have been like wearing it around. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. It's so funny. Yeah, it's really funny. Did it, looking back, do do you think it was a a launch pad for you? It's funny, interesting you saying, you know, that success seemed kind of scary for you at that age, that you didn't know how much you you wanted it and everything that came with it. Did, did, Did getting a taste of it with that gold medal make success a little bit less scary? Um, a little bit for sure, but then it's tough to kind of replicate the greatness of the Olympics. It took me another couple of years and another couple of years of maturity and definite growth in my mindset, um, till I was able to really kind of believe like, okay, I can be one of the best, especially in this kind of generation or this era. Um, the next year, I'll never forget this. I always say this was kind of a huge turning point. It was the end of 97, and we used to play a tournament in Philadelphia before the WTA finals in New York City. And if I won this one match, I was going to go to number two in the rankings. And I remember winning the match and kind of looking over at my coach afterwards, like with these big eyes, like, I can't believe it. I just got to number two. And I guess I said to him afterwards, like, I can't believe this is happening, but I kind of, I see the other players ranked around me and I feel like I should beat them. So I I guess I should be ranked too. And he didn't tell me for years later, he had this like big smile on the inside, like, okay, she's getting there. (laughs) You know, like I wasn't a player you could tell, no, you're really good. You're going to do it. You're going to do it. I had to kind of learn on my own and it it took with a slow process, but I eventually got there. The US Open in 1998, Martina Hingis in the final I read a story about a phone call from Mary Jo Fernandez in in the locker room beforehand. Is that true? Um, I think Mary Jo was, if I had to guess, she was maybe, was she there? Or maybe she was one of my best friends. And so she was the player that I could definitely go to. I think maybe she had left, actually. That's a good, I I definitely was talking to her about trying to handle the nerves of, of playing in that situation. And she had played in a couple of finals and she had kind of gone through the disappointment of losing in them, a heartbreaker at the French one year, um, a close Australian Open. And so I, I think telling me of trying to grasp the importance of this moment, and that wasn't always easy for me to do, kind of embrace, okay, this is a really big match. This is a lot of pressure. I got to I gotta do it here. Instead of saying, oh, isn't this great? I got to the final. You know, I'm so happy. So um, she did talk to me about that quite a lot. That's an interesting mental dynamic because some players would need the pressure taking off in in that scenario. Did you kind of mentally work work a bit differently from that? Well, I was a I was like a pro at trying to take the pressure off. I spent years and years of trying to tell myself, worst case scenario, you know, you got to the semis or you got to the final or you could fly home tonight. Or I would try and play these games in my head to just try to make it not that big a deal. And there was a few times Billie Jean also did this to me before the Olympic final. No, this is a really big deal. And you've got to you've got to realize that and not let this opportunity slide. And certainly about the U.S. Open, um, also trying to get into reality of this is a big chance for you to really achieve your dreams. When you won that match at, at 22 years old, I think you become a Grand Slam champion, an American one. You win on home soil. That comes with a lot of spotlight that you weren't seeking. How was that? How comfortable were you with that? More more equipped at 22. Um, you know, I was incredibly fortunate also to have, you know, 
grow up actually Jennifer Capriati is the same birth year as me. And so I, I, and a lot of other players and the Williams sisters had already started to emerge. So I wasn't at the forefront and people would, you know, in press conferences would always try and bring that up. Like, Oh, you know, so-and-so gets more written about them or got a big deal. And the truth was it it was so fine for me because I was so scared of, of being in the public eye or getting judged or having people write about me that I could kind of like escape a little bit. Obviously when you do better, you, people want to know more. Um, but it wasn't the age of social media. It wasn't the age of where everybody was trying to pick on everybody or bring them down. So I, I kind of got a comfortable little groove and kind of felt safe in my own little world, even though I was becoming a little bit more well known, especially in the States. Yeah, I read an article about you in uh, Sports Illustrated from a while back talking about the fact that you were you were never a, a child prodigy. You were never kind of talked about from a really young age. And in fact, you you hid at school that you were an athlete because <laughs> yeah, you wanted to be normal. Funny. Is that right? It's so yeah, I totally it was it I don't like even now. I mean, talking about myself. And so when you grow up in an individual sport and you're having success, you know, you kind of, it's, it's an odd position to be in. I think I would have been much more equipped to be in a team sport, but that's not obviously how it happened. I also had two sisters at home, one sister who, who kind of struggled with that, even about junior tennis, you know, she'd always tell me, Oh, the mom, you know, talks about your juniors to everyone she comes across and I have to sit there and listen to it. And I'd be like, that doesn't really sound like my parents, but <laughs> uh, I was very aware of that. And it made sometimes my sister uncomfortable. So as a family, we all kind of shifted and, you know, it, it just, it just kind of happened like that. So then when I had to get, when I got better and better, it had to become a little bit more natural for me to talk about it. But, you know, even now, I mean, you could walk into my house and there's no trophies anywhere. My kids are, you know, my kids don't, we try not to <laughs> talk about anything like that much at all. I mean, it's it, for certain personalities, it is a very, very kind of challenging sport. And for me, it, it took years and years for me to be comfortable in my own skin trying to play this crazy game. I know you've talked a lot about the fact that your parents weren't overbearing at all. They weren't pushy sports parents, which can sometimes feel like an exception rather than a rule yeah. in tennis. We, how grateful were you for that and how aware were you that 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 was kind of different for particularly for young female players yeah I was very aware when I started playing pro tennis in the juniors maybe not as aware I mean both my parents worked they both had other things they couldn't take me to absolutely everything although they would try um I had the benefit of them both being athletes and so having knowledge of sport of having knowledge of what it took to to be successful in a sport. So they were very kind of firm on you, you need to go practice, you know, at 12, 13, 14, you, you know, okay, if you're not going to put in the effort, then honestly, we're not going to spend the money to go play this tournament out of state. And so I kind of understood that, you know, I, you needed to commit if I was going to ask so much for my parents financially and their time also away from work and away from my sisters at a pretty young age. Um, my mom, had me kind of arrange my own practices and my own schedule from a very young age because she she didn't know who do you want to hit with where are you practicing so I kind of took control of kind of my day-to-day -day life I, I think at a pretty young age compared to a lot of other um, junior players and that kind of set the tone moving forward um, they weren't 
the my my mom was at one of the three Grand Slams I won at the Olympics. She wasn't at the other two. It wasn't something like they would all of a sudden fly to or change everything about. Um, everyone just kind of went on their life and, and was doing their own deal and still kind of supporting me when I needed it. There was a couple of trips I begged my mom to come on on the pro tour early on. And of course she did. I mean, she's she's my mom. She's always been there for me. But it wasn't the norm. It wasn't like, okay, we're going to travel with you and make sure that we hold your hand through this kind of crazy journey. You're going to have to figure a lot of things out. And I was able to. And I feel like I'm probably better suited now for it. Trying to live a life after tennis, it can be tough on a lot of people. And I, I think for me, the transition was pretty, pretty, pretty easy. What did you think at the time when you, you looked around and saw all these completely different kind of parent, child, coach, daughter dynamics around you? What did you make of all of that? Yeah, pretty lucky. I mean, there's no question. There's I would I would have felt suffocated with my parents traveling with me everywhere in my teenage years or my early 20s. Um, It's you see what it's a business. It's a business to a lot of these families. It's a it's a way for them to um, maybe get a different life for people that they know and they love. And so it takes on a whole different complexion than I I like to play and I want to go play this tournament. And then then you feel kind of guilty because I I was just playing tennis because I wanted to play tennis, not to afford something for my sisters or my parents. It's it's kind of it it's so weird this this whole career this whole sport um lots of different personalities lots of different um people around and you kind of learn that well how you have it and i've kind of realized at a pretty young age wow maybe i am pretty lucky i'm fascinated by this kind of journey that you went on of kind of embracing being extraordinary embracing being a champion because you it sounded like you so wanted to be normal but being a champion isn't normal, right? How did you, how did you marry those two desires? Oh, it, it took a long time, and it, you know, I maybe there was a few years there where maybe if I had had a different mindset, maybe I would have had more success. Maybe I would have burned out sooner. I, I don't know. It's it's always tough to look back. I do know that you know between the ages of seventeen and twenty. I was good enough to play pro tennis, but I didn't have the mindset or the confidence to really be able to do it. So it took years. It took years of kind of seeing what was around me. It took years of just being in front of even a press conference or walking onto a practice court at a crowded tournament and having people, you know, call my name or want autographs or anything like that. It's, it's not normal and it didn't embrace it. And so I think I just had to get in that, experience more and more often to feel comfortable um with it i you know at at right in my late teenage years my family like they my parents started getting divorced that really had a huge effect on me because we're an exceptionally close family so then i kind of was bringing in outside problems trying to practice and play it it was a journey and it was one that i really felt like i didn't hit my stride until my mid-20s ironically i didn't win slams then um, there were some amazing players around, but felt I played my best tennis, had my best mindset um, a little bit later than what was happening at that time or the generation in front of me. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that, that the push and pull between being an exceptional athlete athlete and being a well-adjusted human human being. Like, is that... <laughs> is is are those two things possible at the same time? It feels like 
only a, a handful of, of people have been able to achieve that. It sounds like you might have been one of them. <laughs> I, I hope so. I don't know. I, I can let you talk to my husband. <laughs> let me know what he what he thinks. But um, I I did. I didn't. I didn't love a lot of the things that came with being great. I I liked playing tennis, so I had a, I was very simple minded. And yeah, I I want to go play Wimbledon. I love playing here, but you know, I I mean, when I I remember when I won there in '99, I had to fly to New York and do a few days of press, and I was you know, miserable. I was like, I just want to get home. I just want to like going to New York and doing these shows and like doing all that kind of stuff was like way more stressful for me than having to go play, you know, the final weekend of Wimbledon. And, you know, it's just something that it wasn't as comfortable for me as I've seen other players be able to embrace it and and do so seamlessly. Is it true that you turned down a guest slot on Letterman (laughs) because you thought he'd make fun of you? Maybe, maybe. I've heard that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, all of those things were, were incredibly difficult for me. And to be on that kind of mainstream, it's like, no, no, I watch those shows. I don't want to be on them. <laughs> it's like the opposite of what you really should be aspiring to. I, my agent, Tony Godzik, he had a very rough time in those those years of trying to to get me to do that stuff and convince me it was okay because I was definitely not comfortable doing that kind of stuff. But do you think there was enough appreciation of how how tough it was and still is to a certain extent? I mean, I like to think things have changed, but you know, that doesn't mean we're all of the way there for for female athletes coming through and the the pressures, the expectations, the the desire of of media and the public to to pigeonhole in a in a very unique way, I think, to female athletes. I think it. I think it could. It might even be tougher now. And and having said that, I obviously I played in the '90s and I played for most of the the early 2000 years. But um, I think it's so tough. You're supposed to act a certain way. You're supposed to look a certain way. You're supposed to be, um, you know play well but not too aggressively and and try and kind of balance everything you you have to be you're supposed to be perfect out there and in tennis where you don't have a chance to kind of step back and take a deep breath or have a substitution and have someone else come in for you you're exposed all the time and i think that um i think that they're judged now very harshly also and it's with social media at all. I think it only amps it up even more for the ladies, especially in tennis, where, again, it's just you out there. And so people love to kind of nitpick everything because they don't have a chance to see other players or go to another golf hole and, you know, get the pressure off you for a little bit. Yeah. And, w- and when you were coming through in, in the 90s, there was a, a crop of kind of high profile young. I'm going to say the word glamorous, but I'm I'm using yeah. inverted commas. You just can't see me. <laughs> Uh, female player you know that's how they were pigeonholed by the media were you were you grateful not to be a part of that because there's some there's some pretty sinister sides to to all of that it, it totally and in in kind of the late 90s we had this kind of era of venus and serena and again they were just getting to be really well known so there was a lot of curiosity about them and their story and their relationship with each other and what they've gone through you had hingis around you had kornikova you had capriotti kind of coming back and it, it was there were so many different storylines you could write you know main articles on on so many different players and i loved it because i could kind of just kind of put my head down 
and not be not be the one that was chosen first, second, third or fourth. I honestly lived a pretty boring life. So there wasn't that much there. Um, and all these other players, I, I mean, it would be like Kornikova. We'd always be wondering who was going to be at the tournament with her because she, you know, had a couple different boyfriends there for a while. And the press too, the paparazzi. I mean, there were so many crazy things going on that um, I think it kind of allowed me to then start to work on myself and my game a little with a little bit less of an emphasis on it. What was it like um, behind the scenes? Were you did you feel kind of separate to them all on a personal level, or was that just kind of on a on a public level? Um, I think a more of a public level. I seem to get along with most of the players. I didn't know Venus and Serena very well until maybe the late maybe ninety nine. I think we played maybe our first Fed Cup together, and then had an Olympic experience in two thousand, and that kind of opened my eyes to actually what everything that they go through on the road and from fans and other player, other athletes at the Olympics, certainly. Um, so that was great for me. I, I always got along with Kornikova or Hingis. So it wasn't, I think it was, it was fine for me. And it was something that didn't, didn't stress me out or get me upset that maybe someone else was getting written about more because um, it wasn't something that I was, I didn't really want to be, written about so it was okay for me what what did you learn about serena and venus at that olympics in in 2000 that that changed your impressions of them you you know it wasn't it was just being first of all being able to to be around them and billy was a billy jean our captain at fed cups in the olympics was all about team and even though you might go out there and you're playing for yourself you're still playing for your country and we're still going to sydney as a team so here we all everybody's flying together um we did the uh, going to the opening ceremonies was was hugely eye-opening because you know you march in and then you wait on the field and all the athletes you're supposed to wait with your country but all of a sudden i was with todd martin who was there also playing for the u.s and just thousands of athletes just started descending upon them they're also trying to find some of the basketball members of the dream team of the u.s there were so many that were going to venus and serena for autographs or something that they were wearing for some kind of memorabilia and it was hard to get them back and we walked from the main stadium back to the village it was crazy we're trying to get security and i think maybe that i mean i obviously knew they were very famous but i didn't maybe understand the reaches of how famous they were even at that young of age um how everybody was so enamored by them and wanted a piece of them. And I was walking, I was like to Todd, I go, I think we're going to have to form a barrier to kind of help them get back to the village. It's just crazy. Like, and, and we had to, until someone kind of came to help us. I mean, they were so incredibly popular and well-known and, you know, when you're not around them, maybe off the court, you maybe don't see that kind of stuff. Can you remember how clearly can you remember the the early days of when they were breaking through and when their when their story was just becoming known and and the curiosity there was around them from the public and and presumably from from the players and and the locker rooms as well. Uh, pretty well. I mean, I was I was obviously there playing. I played Venus quite a lot in her early years, um, and. Not not so much Serena. Serena was playing a little bit less kind of in the mid-90s. And I played them in doubles a couple times. And it was fascinating. You know, I they'd grown up originally in Southern California where I was from. And I knew they played a little bit of junior tennis here. 
And then they went to Florida and stopped playing junior tennis. So there was a huge curiosity. No one had seen them really play matches. Everyone was thinking, is this unconventional path going to work? You know, not competing between the ages of, I don't know, it was like 11 and 14, something like that, where they weren't playing any kind of tournaments. They were practicing only with each other and a couple people at Rick Macy's Tennis Academy. Um, and then then you saw them play. And, and I mean, it was like, oh, I'm toast in a few years. <laughs> once they figure out, you know, they were 16, 17, once they start building points better and once they start really hitting their stride, there's there's going to be very tough for anyone to compete with them. Was it that clear right from the get go that they were absolutely the real deal? Yeah, absolutely. And and even more so, um, I thought with Serena, just basic, really the, the big difference just being the serve. Um, Serena had a much more varied serve, not necessarily in pace. They were hitting both of them, hitting it so hard. Serena can kind of hit all the different spins on the serve, like flatten it out. She can come around the outside, slice it. She can kick it. She can do a lot of different things with kind of that same toss and Venus, not so much. She's a little more limited in the spins that she hits and that where she goes. Um, and I thought that was going to be kind of what separated them. I, I don't know. Everyone has their opinions on what it is, why one maybe became greater than the other. Um, but it was like, oh, man, at 16, she can do this out here. She's going to be so great. And fast forward, what, 22, three, four <laughs> years and they're still playing. Would Would you ever have thought that? I mean, they didn't think that, did they? No, that shocks me the most because, you know, that was one of Richard's big messages. Richard, you know, in the beginning of their career, spoke out so much on their behalf. And he was the one kind of saying what their path would be or what they were going to do. And he was saying, oh, yeah, they're they're going to be out of the game so fast because they're you know, they've got other things they want to do. I think this generation, it's phenomenal that we have all these players playing, willing to play, not afraid to admit that, hey, this is what I want to do. This is what really what I love doing. So, no, I'm not going to quit. It seemed like for me in the early 30s, late 20s, that that's where the talk went immediately. And that might be because, you know, Steph quit at 30, 17, he quit, I think, at 25. So you're a women tennis player. Now it's time to stop. Um and all of a sudden now you have Venus and Serena and you even had other players, uh, Panetta, when she won the U S open, you have Roger, you have all these players like, Nope, we're going to play as long as we want. So stop asking all of us. Um, and it's great to see even, you know, Venus out there, Serena's going for history. And so you could kind of, maybe I understand that even more, but Venus is like, no, this is what I'm going to do. And I love it. I think it's so great to still see them out there, still see them playing, but also their competitive fire. Like you still see it with every match they play. In the past uh, few weeks since since this craziness all started, I've spoken to to Mary Carrillo and Chris Everett and asked them both the same question about whether this period will be good or bad for Serena and her quest for 24. And Mary said unequivocally bad. And Chris Everett said she thinks it will be good. And I, I, I don't have it in me to, to disagree with either of them. <laughs> so so what should I think? <laughs> Gosh, it's hard to know. Um, depending on, you know, and this is something, a challenge that a female faces about a family. And do we want more kids as a family unit? You know, there is a, a certain time bomb to that a lot of times with age. Okay, when are we going to play again? I don't really know. Is this a good time? I, I don't know. I don't know her mindset right now going to it. I have to tell you in all of this, like people put this huge record on Margaret Court. Like in my mind, she already has the the record. 
you, you know, there was so different. Uh, some of Margaret Court's Grand Slams were played with only Australians or small draws. I, I don't know. Serena has the open era record. I think I think she has it already, but there's this fascination that she has to get to 24 or 25. Um, and that's kind of put this almost unneeded pressure on her. Um, I don't know. I don't think it's good for any of the older players. I don't think it's good to, at this point, kind of step back. These players were able to pick and choose where they wanted to play already. Serena, one year, I think she played eight tournaments. Roger was skipping the French. Rafa feels like he needs to play a lot. Okay, great. I think you take away this. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's good for any of the players that are kind of 35 and older. I think it, it's robbing them of a year of of potentially making history for all of them. It's funny, isn't it? When when Serena was going for for Steffi Graf's record, no one was mentioning Margaret Court rec, Margaret Court's exactly. record at that time. As soon as she got that, it's like everyone went, "Oh, what's the next thing we can put pressure on her about?" <laughs> yeah, and it's I don't I don't love that. Also, if you go back to like old tennis clips. And I wasn't aware of this. People started sending um, them to me. Like when Steph was going for the record, they never even lifted Margaret Court. You know, they'll have like graphics where, you know, Martina and Chrissy at 18 and, you know, Steph trying to tie them and then get into the lead. It's it's so tough to compare history and the different eras, the different generation. Draw sizes have changed. Um, people's willingness to go play the Australian Open has certainly changed in the last 20, 30 years. Um, it's, it's, in my mind, it's not even that comparable. So I, I think that it, it's very tough on her. It was almost unfair to her these last couple of years. She's still getting to Grand Slam finals after just having a baby and doing so well. But it, yet it seemed like a failure each and every time because I think we're so accustomed to her seeing her win and expecting her to win. Um, so many of us were shocked. I wanted to to talk to you about a couple of other of your your rivals during that period. First off, Jennifer Capriati. There's a lot of things to to touch upon with her. You mentioned you were same birth year. She turned pro, of course, a few years before you because you know she started so young. But I mean, your your paths were so different in so many ways. They really were. I played exactly one junior tournament with her and um that was i think we were both nine at one of the my first national um i believe it was the 12 and under indoors and no shock she went on to win it um i think i i lost in the semis i don't think i played her though um but that was it i mean she was on a path that just seemed outrageous even back then and it was it was huge for me. I loved seeing her break through and do so well um, at those ages. Unfortunately, it all became just a little bit too much, too soon, too much pressure. Um, you know, and we talk about be, how about being on the cover of some of the magazines she was on the cover of at like fourteen years old. It was it was really hard for her. Um, I think I was the benefit of kind of seeing that. I mean, I was playing junior tournaments still in the United States as she's, you know, trying to win the U.S. Open and getting to the semis at 14 or 15. So um, I could kind of see that, okay, you can be this good. And she was an exceptional talent. But wow, that happened really fast and really young for her. Um, It's been kind of a tough go for her with injuries of having the sport being taken away from her on the back end, not being able to play when she wanted to. you know, it's, it's been incredibly tough for her and it's been, you know, it's been hard to watch. I mean, I didn't grow up with her necessarily because she was so much better than I was, but I've certainly played so many years on tour with her and know her well. It's, it's, it's hard. It's sad. 
Yeah, it, it, it is sad that that such a great champion is has wound up kind of being a cautionary tale, if you like. Did I mean how how aware were you at the time of kind of the the the, the damaging things that were happening, the things that were that were going to cause her kind of problems in in the long run that maybe she wasn't aware of at the time. Yeah, it, it, it was hard. It was hard to see all of that kind of go through it. it and it's, again, it, it made it more real, like, oh my gosh, we're the same age, you know, kind of going through each step. Um, she had this amazing run for those couple of years where I, I'm, I'm grateful that she was able to achieve and get her slams and get those titles because I, she deserved them. I mean, she was that good. Um, it wasn't easy for everyone to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And she was dealt a very tough hand um, by being so good. Again, so young. Um, the people around her maybe didn't have a lot of experience in kind of handling it. Okay, what's best for our 14, 15, 16-year-old right now? And that is, that's hard. That's That's hard for anyone to kind of handle. Um, and again, I think because of that and because of maybe a lot of people making decisions for her because she was so young, she didn't know how to make decisions later on for herself. And that has kind of led to um, things not maybe going perfectly for her when, when tennis ended also. Do you think she needed more support from the WTA or was it maybe not possible to, to support her? Yeah. You know, I struggle with all of that and like the age eligibility and all of that. Um, you know, when when Jennifer first burst on to the scene, it was an average system of 12 tournaments. So nobody played over 12 tournaments. So even at 14, 15, 16, um, you know, she was only playing 11 or 12 tournaments. So it wasn't necessarily overplaying, but she played a lot of exhibitions. And, you know, how are you going to tell a minor and the parents that are making the decisions that they're wrong, you can't. I mean, legally, they can do what they want to do. And if they want her to play exhibitions, um, I don't know if the WTA could have really stepped in to do anything. Every player is going to struggle with that. I mean, we've seen it on a much smaller scale with Osaka. I mean, she's been in the age eligibility, but then you burst onto the scene on a global nature. It is scary. And it takes you a little while to adjust, kind of reset we saw her not maybe play her best for a few months, but then kind of finding finding her groove, getting more settled again. Um, and I, I don't know. I think it's it, it's tough to prepare anybody for the change of life and the change of everything that's going to happen when you start having global success and becoming that well-known. Um, and certainly in women's tennis, when you can compete at a very high level in your teenage years, it's a little bit older now, but you're still kind of getting exposed to the media and the fans in your teenage years, I, I think it's tough for anyone to really be ready for what could happen. Martina Hingis kind of went through a similar thing, massive success, very young, seemed to cope with it. I'm, I'm sure elements of it were difficult, but seemed to cope with it better. How, I mean, you had some some amazing meetings with, with uh, Martina Hingis, I think 24 in total. <laughs> I think you had the better of the, the head-to-head at the end of your career careers how significant a rival was she for you um pretty significant and we always got along very well I mean I was closer to Martina than I was Jennifer um Martina I always had a lot of respect for I I, I 
couldn't believe that she was that good also at 15, 16. She didn't possess the same kind of weapons that we were seeing kind of start to develop, which was more power tennis, you know, from Celis coming coming up and Capriotti. The game was shifting. And she was such a so amazing to say, like, nope, you could be bigger than me, you could be stronger than me, you could hit harder than me, but I've got this amazing feel. I have the ability to take balls wherever I want them in the court and put them wherever I want them. Um, her year in 97 is one of the all-time greats. It, it would have gone, would have been an even greater year if she hadn't fallen off her horse and needed knee surgery before the French. I think she easily would have won that French Open. Um, still got to the final, won the other three majors. Um, it's kind of one of the, the more underrated seasons, uh, in my opinion, on the WTA Tour. She was so good. She was so young. At that time, she seemed to be handling everything pretty well and her mom was 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 helping her out i think martina maybe got caught up a little bit in in the attention when some of the other players started breaking through in the next couple of years of kornikova and the williams and all of that of where do i fit in now she definitely wanted to be alpha the top dog and i think that was an adjustment for her when then venus and serena started kind of breaking through and then started really winning majors and kind of cementing their place at the top of women's tennis did you enjoy playing her? Because as you say, she was such a, a different proposition to to pretty much everybody else on tour. I did. I, I had a, a great working relationship with her where, of course, we were, you know, trying to beat each other for big titles and going back and forth between the number one ranking. Um, but we would sit in the locker room before and laugh. She was always very, uh, very generous when she lost to me, very sweet at the net or whenever we would speak. Um, so I, I enjoyed being around her, spending time with her. We didn't practice together much. We only played doubles maybe once or twice, um, which was, which was strange because we actually got along quite well, but I think we were also aware that we were kind of rivals trying to battle for bigger titles. Um, but we also felt, felt like we were friends and I, I still, even to this day, I, I love when I get to see her at the majors. I know she's a new mom now and, um, things are going really well for her, which I'm really happy about. She talked. She talked a little bit about you know the the breakthrough of Serena and and Venus and kind of the the landscape of women's tennis changing so so drastically and like the 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 ground kind of shifting beneath her feet and obviously you were a, a part of that as well. Could could you feel that? Could you feel the game changing during that period late late nineties early early noughties? Uh, oh, totally. I was going to say a hundred percent because. You know, people credit um, Martina Navratilova in the early 80s of really making it much more athletic. Then we had Steffi who kind of came through and she just seemed like it was so effortless for her. You know, it, I, I, no one really knew what Steffi did off the court. She was very private, but she was this like amazing, flowing, like natural athlete that just seemed to glide around the court. And then for me, you know, all of a sudden here come Venus and Serena. They're faster they're stronger, they're more athletic, and they hit the ball hard and can run balls down on the court. Like that was not going to be a winning proposition for me. <laughs> so it was like, oh gosh, everybody has to step up, not only their level of tennis, but the physicality of it, the work part of it, because they were go they're going to be so great. If you're going to have a chance with them, everybody has to get better as a whole. Um, and certainly that was weighed very heavily on my mind. And that kind of changed a lot of the things that I did and how I tried to play and how I would structure kind of my practice weeks of trying to be able to get 
a little bit better athletically, a little bit faster if that was possible. Um, but just to try and do all of that, it, it definitely changed the mindset of the other players. How, how hard was that to to kind of accept? I need to I need to be different. I need to do something different. What I was doing before isn't enough now. Uh, that's funny. Um, I think it was just the reality. I think, um, you know, there was a window there where, you know, Steph quit in 99, but she had been injured quite a lot in 96, 97, 98. So she was kind of coming in and out. And when she was healthy, she was really good and, and really fierce. Monica was coming back from, you know, her unfortunate incident didn't seem like she was at quite the same level, obviously, as she was before. So there was some room there for a few years. And then here come Venus and Serena that really like closed, shut the door. Like, okay, these are going to be our years. Um, it still took them a little while consistently to kind of put up the numbers, but it was overwhelming in the sense of how they were going to take over the sport, but it was also kind of motivating. Okay. If I'm going to continue to do well, I'm going to have to start upping my game. So it kind of gave maybe a bigger purpose for some of the practices. It wasn't just trying to um, play against Hingis or try to, you know, hit big second serve returns. It was like, okay, how am I going to get this 120 mile an hour first serve back? Where am I going to stand? What's the backswing? How am I going to be able to hold my serve every time? Because that's going to be really tough also. It was a huge challenge. But I, honestly, it kind of like made it more inspiring and more motivated in practice. One of your matches with, with Venus that, that lives so long in my memory, I'm sure yours as well, is the <laughs> the 2005 Wimbledon final, the longest women's final in, in Wimbledon history, two hours 46 when I when I mentioned the mention of that match, what are your initial memories? You know, it was it was maybe the only, and I don't want to say it like that, but one of the few matches that I played so well and lost. <laughs> it was, you know, it was it it was amazing. It was heartbreaking, but it 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 was how to play Venus on grass, and I could never solve that. I could beat her on the other surfaces, but playing her on grass was a totally different challenge. And um, I served for the match in the second set. I think she broke me at love or 15. I didn't get close. I had a breakup in the third and that's where I kind of lost it. I had match point at um, five, four, six, five returning, but I was up a break earlier in the third and that's kind of where things got away from me. Um, but, you know, I really wanted to win a major um, married and I'd lost in the finals earlier that year at the Australian Open, just completely ran out of gas between the doubles final and the singles final, um, lost in three sets to Serena. I that was and then I had another chance at Wimbledon and wasn't able to do it. So that that part was hard. I wanted to win one as like Mrs. Leach. And I, <laughs> you know, that's what I was kind of most disappointed at. I wasn't able to win one kind of with my husband there. What was different about Venus on grass? I, I felt like she played even a different style on grass. And I always wondered why she didn't kind of incorporate that onto the hard courts, certainly the faster hard courts. I feel like she should have, she should have an Australian open title. She was way too good of a player, too good of a hardcore player to never win there. May I think she probably could have won more U S opens. I always felt that though, she waited a little bit longer on hard courts. Like she wouldn't step into the court, take a ball and start moving forward. It was so tough to get a ball by her on grass because she would come take balls a little bit earlier. She wasn't afraid to come in. Her ball, she hits very flat, so it would kind of skid off that grass that was still playing pretty fast back then. 
um, and you're just kind of on your heels. And now you had someone coming forward. Not the players had stopped really moving forward, kind of around that time. But here came Venus, who knew where to cover, did well covering the net, and so you didn't have a lot of breathing room. I still think it would it was tough to pass her on hard court. I don't think she took advantage of that kind of play and that kind of mindset, being that aggressive, taking any ball a little bit earlier inside the baseline as well on hard courts as she did on grass. That 05 Wimbledon final was was delayed, wasn't it? Because at the conclusion of the the men's semi-final that had been uh, rained off the day before. So you had a, a not before time for your your final. Is that right? Oh my gosh, that's a good memory. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I don't remember that. I know in 99, uh, we played Sunday and we had a noon start because the men, you know, there was so much rain. I remember that pretty clearly. Um, I don't remember 05, I have to say. I don't remember that at all. But it, it, I'm sure that is likely. I mean, we, you know, with no roofs back then and rain all the time, I feel like we were, we had to be much more flexible than, than the players have to be these days with more options at the majors with covered courts. The last um, point I wanted to make about that match was I read a couple of quotes from you afterwards where you were talking about how during the match you were aware of how good it was, of how exhilarating it was, which is kind of amazing to me because so many players talk about, you know, being present and in the moment. It's like you were, (laughs) you had this perspective on it, like you were kind of outside of yourself, which is so interesting. Which probably isn't what you're supposed to be. (laughs) Final thinking about, wow, this is really good high level. Um, Maybe just a glimpse to the demons in my own mind. What I have to go to, to focus um no I'm just kidding but yeah it was you you get a sense when you're playing certain matches like okay this is special okay this is this is pretty fun it it was it it was amazing for me to be able to as you said almost three hours to play at a pretty high level until the very end when all of a sudden I was like oh my gosh I I can't (laughs) anymore because I'm my body is now breaking down but Venus was you know she was so good on that court and she was able to play at levels you know also Venus you could never tell if she was down on herself or not I mean she had this ability to just kind of can keep her composure keep fighting she is an amazing competitor and I think that gets kind of underestimated with her because we don't see her give fist pumps we don't see her kind of get either too excited or too down on herself and so when you played her you never really knew what was going on in her mind she had such a great poker face out there and you think like okay I have the upper hand and she'd come right back and in that match it was very evident because a lot of players would have shown some frustration would have shown some emotion and and not Venus. She she's able to keep it in until the very last point. And I always I mean, it's impossible not to admire that about her. Last couple of questions. Been really generous with your time. I appreciate it. Do you have a do you have an achievement or a, a title, a moment that, that you're most proud of that you that you think about the most often? That's so funny. Um I you know, my my early career, it seems like a different lifetime ago, maybe even a different person. I, um, you know, I got pregnant at the end of 06 and was like, oh gosh, this is amazing. Like we always wanted to have kids. So I didn't play at all. And then like, of course, in my eighth month of pregnancy, I thought, 
you know, maybe I'll come back. Maybe that'll that'll be fun. And my husband was like, you are crazy. Like, <laughs> when did this start? Anyways, I had my son June 10th. And in September, I went to go play a tournament in Bali, my first tournament, um, and I won it. And I'll, I'll never forget that. My mom, my husband couldn't go, unfortunately, but my mom and I were there. And I remember this moment afterwards where here I have my son. He's, I don't know, three months, almost four months, somewhere in there. And my mom, who is, you know, she, I, I just adore her. She lives with us now. And she's so important to me and my kids. And we were just sitting there hugging. And it was this just this great moment. I was missing my husband. So <laughs> it wasn't a totally complete moment. But here I was now as a mother um, with my son competing in pro tennis. And it just seemed like this is I can't believe my life right now. I'm so incredibly lucky. So bizarrely, I kind of go back to this small tournament in Bali more so than some of the other tournaments because it included my son. That's so nice. I feel like that's where we should end. But I do have, I, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I was going to ask, you strike me as somebody that doesn't have any regrets. Or if you do, they're not ones that you you dwell on. Well, Would that be right? You know, it could be. Um, I wish, you know, I had been, I had maybe gotten my act together a little younger and really realized maybe at 16 or 17 that, okay, I I am good enough right now to win majors. But then I then I say like, gosh, who knows? Maybe if I had gone all in at that young of age, maybe I would have burned out or maybe I would have started to hate it. Or maybe, you know, I really wasn't ready at that time mentally or, or, or even physically, I was still growing, um, to do that. Um, not really. I feel like I'm so incredibly lucky tennis. Honestly, I say this has given me everything. It's given me, um, the ability to go after my goals, to achieve them. Um, it gave me success. It's giving me a job now. It's given me my husband and my family and we love it. You know, my husband also played, so he's, you know, he also, kind of loves the sport and is totally supportive of whatever and gets it. And, you know, we're, I, I'm so lucky. I, I love tennis and I'm not never going to shy away from that. Oh, that's a, that's a really lovely uplifting note to end on. But <laughs> <laughs> thank you for cheering me up. I, uh, oh, Lindsay, yeah. thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.